0: Jumbo. One dead child on a Mediterranean beach one more sad illustration of the biggest migration of people in history Libya the war of words between Prime Minister Cameron and former Chief of Defense Staff Lord Richards Afghan interpreters what price should we pay now the war is done and 22,000 troops and a hundred missiles on parade in Beijing. It's potentially the biggest displacement of people in Europe since the Second World War. 60 million refugees and economic migrants are on the move, but European leaders cannot agree on how to deal with the crisis. There are calls for Britain to take in more migrants, but David Cameron says the focus should be on tackling the conflicts abroad which are forcing people to flee. Well, I'm joined now by Laura Padawan from the UN Refugee Agency, the UNHCR, as well as former commander of Three Commando Brigade, Major General Julian Thompson and, as usual, BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to all of you. Uh, Laura Padawan, how should the European governments be dealing with this?
1: Hello. Uh, well, firstly, it's it's really um, sad and distressing to see um, yet another tragic event. We're seeing now everyday images of um, children and, and in other families um, who are dying in the Mediterranean or trying to cross um, Europe in very, very... Um, perilous circumstances. I mean, this situation is bigger than any one country can manage, but what we need now is a joint coordinated response uh, from countries across Europe in order to prevent tragic um, further loss of life. Uh, And we can do this in a number of ways. Um, There are safe legal routes for Syrian refugees to access safety, and that could be through resettlement, through um, humanitarian admission, through flexible visa arrangements instruments, or through the kind of private sponsorship uh, of individuals that we see in other countries in Europe, such as Germany. So what do you make when you see the kind of political arguing that's going on at the moment? Well, first of all, we, we do think that the numbers in Europe are low compared to the huge crisis that is being faced um, by countries neighboring Syria. So Turkey, for example, is hosting just under 2 million Syrian refugees. Uh, Lebanon is uh, a country of 4 million people and they have more than uh, 1.1 million Syrian refugees, so more than a quarter of their population are Syrian refugees. In Europe what we're seeing um, is is the um, fallout from that situation uh, in the Middle East. Countries are buckling under the pressure, their resources and, and services are under strain, and they can no longer cope with this huge number of Syrian refugees. There need to be humanitarian solutions now beyond the region, and that includes Europe. Christopher Lee, uh, do you get
0: the sense when you see the kind of things that you're seeing on the television that Western Europe has really been caught out, caught on the hop on this?
2: I don't think it's been caught on the hop. It's known about it for some time. It's certainly known about three years. I'm always working on a programme, um, a NATO programme, which was Uh, saying this was going to happen, and that was one and a half years ago, so not being caught on the hop, is what we've got here, and we've already seen the open divisions, public divisions, between certain parts of the European Union, certainly the uh, eastern part of the European, and the western part of the European, Europe sort of almost mentally is not governed, it is not open to resolving this problem for all sorts of political reasons, and also it is incapable of resolving the problem. We could, for example, say, uh, OK, as Mr Cameron does, we have to go back to the source of the problem, in which Britain, for example, is putting a lot of money trying to solve that. Solve Syria? Mm. Uh, solve Ethiopia? Solve Iraq? And you do that... I mean, you can't do it in a, in a couple of days. So it is a question of... You can have, let's say, between 4 and 7 million refugees, uh, let's say, in, in, in the Levant mm. region this you could not cope with in Europe because in continental Europe we haven't got the structure we, nor have we got the sort of ideas how to cope with
0: it. Laura that. Padawan, do, do you agree with that idea that Europe is incapable of solving the problem?
1: Well, the only solution to the problem is is peace um, uh, yeah but you know in lieu of a more permanent um, stable uh, solution in Syria and, and in other countries, um, then people will still be forced to flee um, because you know what they're fearing is that their lives are at risk if they stay in those countries. Um, no one is expecting Europe to um, host you know, the huge numbers um, and millions that we're seeing um, in Jordan, Turkey and Lebanon. Just a few hundred thousand, certainly um, Europe could uh, resettle greater numbers than, than we're currently seeing. though.
0: And Major General Julian Thompson, do you get the sense that we are witnessing here a turning point in history?
3: Well, it's potentially a turning point in history because, as Christopher says, there's no way that Europe can take all these people. If we try to do it, it will so alter the ethnic balance of the population of Europe as to make it unrecognisable from what we see uh, the place we live in today. And countries are
0: very aware of that, aren't they?
3: Very aware of it, absolutely, and this is why uh, they're all uh, drawing their borders tight or trying to close their borders, because they don't want it to happen. It would be a, a, a national disaster if it happened.
2: Christopher? Until this morning, in the United <coughs> Kingdom, where we saw on most front pages the body of a three-year-old child, this has largely been a problem in the, in the British mind, certainly, of anxieties, that we don't want them in here, we can't cope with them in here, we'll have to give them benefits, etc. And then we have the politicians, and I say this guardedly, saying, yes, it's a long-term problem. Uh, people are starting to say, well, hang on, it is now a problem, it's today a problem. We don't have... Physically, we do not have the system to resolve those problems.
0: Laura Padoan, looking forward to, to autumn and winter and the year ahead, how do you think the situation is going to develop?
1: Well, I mean, sadly, uh, without any kind of calming in the situation, and as we're hearing uh, IS gaining control of other uh, towns across Syria and Iraq, it will mean that more people are forced to flee. Laura Padowan from the UNHCR, thank
0: you for joining us today. So, David Cameron says the migration problem should be tackled at source. Then surely the obvious place to start would be Syria, Ethiopia and certainly Libya. Libya is arguably the people-smuggling hub of the Mediterranean, but is Britain's foreign policy to blame here? A little earlier I spoke to Crispin Blunt, chairman of the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, which has launched an inquiry into Britain's part in deposing President Gaddafi and all that followed. It's now claimed that the Chiefs of Staff and Number 10 did not agree on the military plan against Libya in support of the rebels in 2011. So I asked Mr Blunt what he made of this disagreement.
4: Well, we need to be careful because we've only seen extracts uh, of comments within a National Security Council meeting being reported in Anthony Seldon's book uh, about David Cameron. So it's important that we have an inquiry of the kind my committee is going to attempt Uh, to look at those commentaries uh, in the round, not just uh, snapshots of one particular statement Uh, so we can examine what stood behind the 2011 decision, how much we understood about the situation in Libya and the forces that we might uh, release and indeed then uh, have released, how much we should have known beforehand. We can learn lessons for the Uh, capacity of the Foreign Office to be able to advise properly uh, decision-makers in these circumstances. And I also want to look at how much, as we were manipulated into making that decision by people in in whose interest it was that the West should uh, engage in the way that we did. Uh, I also want to look at our relationship with the previous Gaddafi regime. Uh, It's well known now that we had a substantial investment uh, in that sense, in the future, by trying to groom Saif Gaddafi to be a, a much more moderating influence uh, on that regime, and uh, he was widely expected to be the successor to his father. Uh, so all of these things uh, bear examination.
0: And when you specifically be looking at whether it was right to intervene in the first place?
4: The merits of the decision to intervene will, of course, be uh, part of our inquiry, uh, as will the merits of our policy subsequent to the intervention, uh, and we will also be wanting to make recommendations uh, for f- future British policy, g- given the situation as we find it.
0: Quite, quite often when you have controversial interventions of this kind of nature, you hear after the event the kind of concerns that were raised at the time. What do you think is going to change in the future following the uh, results of your reports and your inquiry?
4: Well, the first instance we need to know what opinions and advice was being given to the government. uh, And we need to, if it's clear that there was a line of advice going to the government that was chosen to be ignored and turned out to be correct, then we have to look at, examine why that happened and make recommendations for uh, processes that would make it less likely uh, that that kind of line of advice would be ignored in the future. Uh, that's all a necessary part of learning uh, the lessons from any set of circumstances so we can improve our processes and hopefully each time produce better, uh, better policy.
0: Turning specifically to the harrowing migration crisis at the moment, is the Foreign and Commonwealth Office doing enough?
4: What I want to see is the level of commitment made by the United Kingdom, both in terms of our development expenditure and our defence expenditure, uh, which is unique. We're the only European country uh, meeting both NATO's defence expenditure target of 2% and the UN target of 0.7% uh, of uh, GDP to be spent on development. Uh, and, we're, and we're the leading European country by country mile on those statistics. Uh, we're already making a very substantial contribution to addressing the uh, this, uh, the symptoms of this crisis in the region with our contribution to, in countries like Jordan, uh, Lebanon and Turkey through either multinational uh, institutions to the UN uh, Agency for Human Rights uh, or indeed to the countries uh, directly. So uh, Britain is already playing a very substantial role. Uh, I think we need to use this crisis to make sure that our European Union partners Uh, commit to playing a similar scale of role. Then we can begin to address effectively the causes of these crises as well as the current symptoms of these tragic uh, migratory flows.
0: That was the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Crispin Blunt, speaking to me earlier. Uh, Christopher Lee, on the subject of their investigation into Libya and what went on there, it looks like it has the potential to be a military and political row of huge proportions.
2: This could be an absolute whopper of a row. Mm. And I'll tell you, for example, it's not Chilcot. It's not going to go on for six months, for six years, rather. What we can very, very see that this will report probably next year, it's going to be, the, the butter of this will be, it's the military versus the political decision-making process. And also, did Britain rush into it? What was the thing about the French? lead? Did they lead the way? Mm. But mostly... Look at read the stuff that we're hearing now from former chiefs of the defence staff like David Richards. Mm -hmm. Hear what's coming from Number Ten, and it is very clear: you do the fighting, I'll do the talking. It's going to be the theme of this.
0: Major General Julian Thompson. It's
3: well known that he was advised not to get involved. It's it's, it's out in the in the public domain. It's well known, so there's really no need to have an inquiry. Were
0: you you involved in uh, advising around the time? No, no, I wasn't involved,
3: but I was watching with amazement because you know. What uh, what did you think? Anyone with a strategic Nouse of less than a pygmy would have realised <laughs> that going into Libya was completely wrong and completely ridiculous. What,
0: what, what would you have been saying if you were advising the government at that time? Don't touch it with a barge and pole. What, 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 what reasons would you have given him? I would Why'd... have said
3: there's no point in getting rid of this guy because you don't know what is going to follow. Exactly the same with Iraq. Exactly
2: the same with Iraq. You do not know what's going to follow and you could have guessed what's going so to why, follow.
0: why do you think that happened, Christopher?
2: It happens time and time and time again that you get you get outside pressures. For example, in this case, in the case of mm-hmm. Lebanon, there is a, a great belief in both Foreign Office and, to some extent, the Defence Ministry that because uh, President Sarkozy took the lead in this, and I'm going anyway, that Breton was saying almost, me too, me too. And that is what happened. You go back to Iraq, you know, the Americans are going anyway, we want to be, want to be in mm-hmm. that. But the most important part of it is the... It's not the breakdown. It is also the fact that in Downing Street, quite often, and you can understand why, it is not understood... The military case is not understood. And it's also another thing that sometimes the military do not explain exactly what they mean because they've got no solution.
0: Do you think, Julian Thompson, that that regardless of what did happen, had there not been an intervention, that the Arab Spring would have brought Colonel Gaddafi down regardless? Well, it
3: might not have done. It might not have done. There's no reason why it should have done. He was perfectly uh, well ensconced And all we did was destroy his his troops and his, his means of holding on from the air, quite cleverly targeted, I have to say. He, he,
2: I mean, he, don't forget, he was threatening to go into Benghazi and, and, and massacre the whole lot. And mm. we said, oh, well, that's a good reason to go. But having done that, just supposing he had done something, he would have been a, opposed. And the lesson for the whole thing for the past ten years is let people sort things out regionally. Absolutely.
0: Still to come, China on parade and British World War II merchant seafarers all but forgotten. Or are they? More than 161,000 people have signed a petition calling on the Prime Minister to protect all Afghan interpreters who served with British troops. Former Chief of the General Staff, Lord Dannett, is backing the campaign, and next week he'll discuss it with the Armed Forces Minister, Penny Mordaunt. Here's Lord Dannett speaking to BFBS reporter Rosie Layden.
5: The point is that if any of them genuinely feel that there is a threat to their own safety, their own lives, and the lives of their family, then we have a moral obligation to stand by them and look after them. And that probably means bringing them and giving them the opportunity to come to this country.
4: And the government say the support they offer to interpreters is sufficient.
5: Well, they've offered some support. Uh, I think it's very narrow. I think it's very limited. The uh, time bracket is very small. I think we should be much more generous, much more open-hearted, and we should have a presumption that when people ask for our help, we will give it including probably bringing them to this country. We can examine their case while they're here. And if they come here on that basis, and there is an understanding that if they're fraudulent or just trying it on, then we will send them back where they came from. But the presumption, I think, has to be generous. It has to be open-handed and go, in the case of Afghanistan, back to the start of our operations in southern Afghanistan in 2006.
0: Why do you think the government is resisting pressure to do more on this issue?
5: Well, I think there are two reasons. One is the general debate about immigration. There is concern that there is too much immigration into this country. and I think many people would recognise that and understand that. So the government doesn't want to increase that problem. But I think that's not a legitimate reason not to be generous towards this group of people who have helped us do our difficult job and their difficult job in, in Afghanistan. And then, of course, the other reason is simply cost. Uh, They don't want to incur the cost of bringing people here and giving them some kind of resettlement grant. But, again, the numbers are relatively small. Yes, it might be as many as two and a half or 3,000, but in the context of 100, 200, 300,000 immigrants coming into this country, that number is very small.
4: Uh, And do you think it's important for Britain to be seen
5: to be uh, more generous to this group? It's important for Britain to be seen to be generous to this group, but I think what's equally important is that reputations matter. The next time we deploy somewhere and we want to recruit interpreters, language assistants, if word gets around, well, the British will use you and then they'll dump you, we're not going to get the help that we need. So establishing and maintaining a reputation is really important. It's a global world we live in and people can tweet their views right across the globe. So don't just think because Afghanistan was a bad experience, the next place won't hear about it. They will.
4: What are you going to do next? Um, Are you going to try and throw more weight behind this cause? Are are you going to speak to um, the Secretary of State perhaps?
5: Well the incredible thing since this online petition began that it went very quickly from 50,000 signatures to 100,000 signatures and it's well over 100,000 now and uh, next week I'm meeting the Armed Forces Minister Penny Mordant who I was going to be in touch with anyway but her office got in touch with me so we'll have a good and frank discussion about these issues next week in London.
0: That was Lord Dallet speaking to Rosie Layden. Uh, Julian Thompson, have British forces always used local interpreters, and and why exactly, rather than soldiers?
3: Yes, they have, because otherwise you've got to teach the soldiers the language. And if you don't know where you're going to have your next operation, for example, do you then start working out, well, we might be in Moldova; we better teach from Moldovan, and then you end up having to speak uh, Eskimo or something like that. And even more important, actually, or as important, is you need really good language skills to interrogate prisoners. It's no good having some chap who's having to look up the words in a dictionary in the middle of the the interrogation. You've got to have someone who can understand what the chap is actually saying behind the words and say... This is what he's saying, but he doesn't mean that at all. He means something else. He's got to be that subtle if you're doing an interrogation.
0: That's why, Christ- that's
3: why you need people with these uh, local language skills.
0: Clearly, clearly this issue, hmm. Christopher, is, is gathering a, a lot of support. Do you think, how, how do you think the government should handle it, and can it handle it in a way that keeps everyone happy?
2: It'll um, not keep everybody happy. Uh, what you've got to do is to actually work out, uh, perhaps from the people that worked with the interpreters the sort of people, what their connections were... Did it all? Did it all work out? Especially when you get to something that Julian's talking about—the interrogators, for example. The interrogators. You think those breed. are the
0: ones that should have the absolute priority in they terms should, of well, having it's in the priority. UK. I don't think there's
2: any question about it because an interrogator would be considered a spy by uh, anybody else, especially a national who has really abandoned his own side. And as jo- uh, as Julian was saying, you you can't do that simply with uh, with service interpreters because, for example, if you're in uh, Afghanistan, what is the what is the Pashto uh, for 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 uh, AK-47, or something like that, or tank, or, or 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 Sanger, or whatever. You've got to know that to that level, and therefore you are mightily exposed.
0: And do you believe, Gillian uh, Thompson, that every Afghan interpreter who worked with British forces, their lives would be at risk, and that they have the case for asylum in the UK? Do you think everyone has? Yes, that? I
3: think they do. I'm absolutely sure they do. And of course, they'll, they'll be tested out in in the sense that their records will be gone through because, as as interpreters or interrogators they will have been recruited by someone. There'll be some record of their service and where they were and who they were with. And I believe they do deserve it.
0: Mm. Let's look at some of the other stories around this week. And, Christopher, uh, a row going on in Stormont in Northern Ireland about whether the IRA is still active and what is going on exactly then? What's it saying? OK,
2: a a few months ago, there was a guy called Kevin McGuigan, and he was murdered in daylight uh, on the streets of Belfast. The Ulster Unionists... Said that this was a this was what they called a wet job um, by uh, the IRA. Still, the IRA, the Provisional IRA. Uh, when this was questioned, the P- Police Service of Northern Ireland did did refuse to say that it wasn't IRA. In fact, if you go into the detail of the notes they sent to Stormont, what they actually said was it could be that there were members, former members of the IRA, who carried out this, this, this assassination. They called it assassination, not a murder. Now, what's happened is the, the Ulster two main or the two Ulster parties, there's 13 people on the uh, Northern Ireland executive, one seat goes to, or one ministerial seat goes to the UU, the other DUP, and they are saying we will challenge Sinn Féin's right to be in the Northern Ireland executive because they are uh, still supporting IRA members.
0: Julian Thompson, as a man who served in Northern Ireland with British forces, what do you think when you hear this thing going on still today?
3: Well, it doesn't surprise me, I have to say, because it'll go on for eternity. It'll go on until the day happens, which I don't think it will happen soon, Ireland is reunited, because there are some people who believe in a reunited Ireland the same way as there are people in Argentina who think that the Falklands belong to them. And uh, it's in the DNA, so I believe it will go on.
0: Mm. Uh, Other things around this week, uh, Trident and the government's investing £500 billion in Faslane and Christopher, and this before the renewal of the Trident boats has even been decided.
2: Well, it is, except that you actually got to maintain what you've got all all there. I mean, just supposing next year, when the debate comes about, should we renew Trident? Supposing the answer is no. You're not just going to pull it all down. I mean, it'll take 10, 15 so that, years. So that's how bought...
0: much money was needed, is it? exactly? That was exactly the bill that okay. was needed to do. So just a nice political announcement.
2: Well, it was going to happen, it was going to happen anyway. That money was all, all, all already in the bank for the MOD to get on with it.
0: Okay. The massed bands of the Chinese People's Liberation Army in Beijing earlier today. The occasion, the 70th anniversary of the defeat of Japan in World War II. Uh, Christopher, a very big and special occasion for the Chinese. You were watching this parade. What did you see and hear?
2: First thing is the speeches that came. We have to remind ourselves. We think of you know, the war against Japan, sort of starts 1941 and finishes 1945. Chinese don't think that way. The Chinese had already been at war for 10 years before Japan, Japan got into the World War. So that is particularly important. They haven't forgot it either. The massacres in Nanking, for example, Chinese still talk about it. They still commemorate it. What did I see, uh, apart from 22,000 troops which you can pile in there and absolutely perfectly lined up, uh, some of them not even soldiers? They 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 had to be marked out their perfect height. They all had to be five foot six or something like that. <laughs> and so no, so you got you got the perfect the perfect marching. But what was I looking? for? I was looking for the dong, you know, as I would of course, as you would know. I was looking for the Dongfen Twenty One Delta. Uh, now,
0: please explain to those who may not know.
2: There's only one or two. <laughs> um, this is this called by us in the West? It is called a carrier buster, and it is a particular missile. It's a particular warhead that one of them getting home can take a carrier apart. The Americans are particularly keen about this because the Americans have got 10 carriers, the Chinese have only got one. But the other thing was that with, with the medium-range uh, uh, intercontinental missiles or, or continental missiles and the intercontinental missiles, uh, and it was the strength also of the fact that a lot of the stuff that I could see I had never seen before. And I was sitting there with a cloud of notes and sort of thing. you know, have I seen that and what's that all about? A pure, pure, at three o'clock in the morning anorak, I promise you. But it's important because uh, what I also was hearing, that for the first time ever, five Chinese warships were seen up in the Barents Sea. Mm. Now that says, I'm putting on a demo, I'm a Chinese, I'm putting on a demo to show you that I'm a mighty source. I spend 2.3% of my GDP on my forces. However, As President Xi says, uh, yes, I do that, but I'm also cutting 300,000 out of the troops, which uh, bringing down the the army uh, to a certain extent, and also we are peaceful people, Uh, and the Americans would say, yeah, that's why you're building so many bases in the China Sea. Mm -hmm. I know I can see it all. Julian
0: Thompson, I I guess you weren't sitting up watching it at three in the morning, were you? No,
2: I wasn't. But what
3: uh, going back to the, the Second World War, of course, a million Japanese soldiers were in China throughout the Second World War. So they, they, and before. And before. But the point about that is that a million Japanese soldiers were in China, fighting in China, not in the Pacific. So there were a million less soldiers for all the Allies, led by the Americans, of course, to face in the Pacific War.
0: What about who was on the guest list and who wasn't, country-wise, Christopher?
2: Well, a lot of people didn't show and, and made it clear they weren't going to Who were the I mean, no-shows, then? Well, the most, I mean, Kim us, Jong-un? Uh, well, your good friend wasn't there. Not uh, leader. But, but the most important... My good uh, friend? Well, the most important people uh, not there, of course, uh, President 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 Obama and um, Prime Minister uh, um, uh, Cameron wasn't there, who was there right alongside President Xi was, of course, President Putin, fresh from his latest uh, uh, sort of photo op in his gym and in a submersible. (laughs) Um, But he was there. But this is solidarity stuff. Uh, he was there he is at the moment really getting up the frock of all these analysts in Washington, except by showing up that things like this and and the latest is that uh, some of his troops, plus equipment have been seen fighting for President Assad in in Syria, and that is quite a quite quite a number that he 's putting up. I am there alongside the Iranians, alongside the Chinese.
0: And just before we go, today is Merchant Navy Day. Its uh, purpose is to remember the numbers of merchant sailors who perished in World War Two. Um, Christopher, this is something you care about deeply, isn't it?
2: Yes, I do. Um, Thirty-five thousand minimum uh, seafarers, uh, merchant navy seafarers, perished in 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 World War Two. Uh, not just the Battle of the, the Atlantic, on the on on the Russian convoys, etc. Often forgotten, and. You know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a new story, but we've got to remember that during World War II, merchant sailors, and they were losing those sort of numbers, more than the Royal Navy in times, um, could go into a bar, let's say, in Cardiff or, or Liverpool and get themselves beaten up because the British public would say, why aren't you in uniform? Why aren't you in the Navy? They really were the forgotten Navy, and it's only two years ago. Than a memorial to 35. It's probably closer to about 45,000. Some of them still we don't know about. Julian Thompson.
3: Well, the Battle of the Atlantic was probably the most important battle of the war. If we hadn't won the Battle of the Atlantic, we'd have lost the war. Churchill said there wasn't a day when I didn't worry about the Battle of the Atlantic.
0: Mm. Uh, just looking ahead to the, the coming week, what should we look out for, Christopher, do you think, in the well, headlines for I us? think the
2: most important thing is, that, is the political meetings that are going to be taking place in the EU because of the refugee uh, difficulties that we've got. This is only the beginning, remember. Today, today there are 60 million, 60 million refugees on the move in the world. This is the beginning of something which we're not being, going to be cope, to cope with. For many years... And in the meantime, we're going to find another picture of another three-year-old died on a beach in Turkey.
0: Well, on that note, we, we must leave it for this week. I'm sure we'll be back on this subject next time, this time next week. Uh, my thanks to all of our contributors and, of course, uh, to you, Christopher Lee and Julian Thompson. Do keep your comments coming in on Twitter. We are at BFBS sit rep. Join us again this time next week. But from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. I'll speak to you again soon. Bye.
1: and music Music. for the British Forces. This is BFBS